This is Connect with Encompass Health, our podcast for healthcare professionals by healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Mary Ellen DeBartolabin, and I'm also the company's National Director of Quality. In this season of Connect, we're focusing on healthcare innovations. And it's hard to have a conversation about healthcare innovations these days without mentioning artificial intelligence and machine learning. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dale Unger, Clinical IT Advisor for Encompass Health, and Andy Leaders, Senior Manager and Lead Consultant with Oracle Cerner, about how through this partnership, we're using both AI and machine learning to support clinical decision-making and improve patient care and outcomes. Welcome, Dale and Andy. Good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. Those listening who may not know, Oracle Cerner is a leading provider of digital information systems used within hospitals and health systems around the world. And Encompass Health is the nation's leading provider of inpatient rehabilitation. Before we get started, Dale and Andy, tell us a little bit about yourselves and your current roles. Let's start with you, Dale. Sounds great. So I began my career at Encompass Health actually 30 plus years ago. Um, I started as a registered nurse uh, in our rehab hospitals and moved into several leadership roles in nursing, also in case management and marketing, and then uh, grew into a CEO role with the company and held various CEO roles with the company for about 10 years until I transitioned to the clinical IT world in 2009 and have been there ever since working with our electronic health record system and now with uh, all of this great clinical data we have available to us. Andy, tell us about yourself. How long have you been with Cerner? Well, I started as a kind of fresh out of the college delivery consultant, as they called it them back in 2010. I worked up through all the consultant roles, which is where I'm at today as a lead consultant. I've served as various project roles, so project manager, analytics manager, uh, kind of like this IT advisor like Dale is. And I always seem to get assigned atypical projects, you know, the things that just are out of like, oh, Andy, he'd be good for that. So I don't know. That's kind of just how it's always been for six, seven years, maybe something like that. So, yeah. So the innovative problem solvers, because I feel like that would apply to Dale, too. I think so. We need special T-shirts. <laughs> Andy, uh, tell me, does uh, Oracle Cerner still have their own parking lot at the Kansas City Airport? Oh, that's always been the joke, right? Uh <laughs> You, we used to get we used to get greeted by Delta. It said, "Welcome, Cerner Associate." I don't know if it still does that with our new terminal, but you know we're we're a pretty big traveler here in KC. Yeah. Um, so let's start from the beginning. When did Cerner and Encompass Health begin working together? Well, we started working together back in really the formal start time period was 2009. Uh, prior to that. Encompass Health, clinicians at Encompass Health used paper for our documentation. Uh, we selected Cerner to partner with them to begin our journey to electronic health records. Um, so that's how we started. And of course, with the size of our hospitals, the number of our hospitals, it took us a number of years uh, to make that journey where all of our hospitals, of course, now and for a number of years now have been using the electronic health record system. And we really have to credit our executive team um, because our hospitals in post-acute care were not part of the High Tech Act, which gave right. incentives to health systems at the time to move onto an electronic medical record. 
And we were not included, um, but our executive team made the strategic decision to spend those resources and move us into that digital landscape. And that decision a long time ago is how we're able to discuss what we're doing today with AI and machine learning. Because exactly. Because we're in a sophisticated place with the volume of data that we have. So that was a decision that not everyone in our space has made. Um, and I, I still know health systems that are outside of the acute space that are still on paper. Um, That's right. So that was a huge decision. It was. And it's made all the difference now in the availability of this clinical data. Like you said, that we're going to speak to how we use that today. Couldn't have done it without this sight, the vision they had uh, to make this move. It wasn't required of us to do so. So uh, it was the right thing to do. And now we're we're seeing a lot of benefits where we can improve our patient care because of this clinical data. Andy, when did you get pulled into the project? And tell us what made this one unique for Cerner. Well, I got pulled in. It wasn't right at the beginning, if I remember right. It was around that 2017, 2018 I remember Dale and several others on the executive side at Encompass were at our Cerner Health Conference in Kansas City. And Andy, I, I was pulled in. They're like, Andy, you need to come and you're going to be presenting. I'm like, presenting on what? Uh, but so I got I got involved right when we were trying to start figuring out more of what we wanted to do. So that React version one um, and try to help to implement that technology. Like we had the idea of the model as a predictive, you know, tool, but then how do we get it into the state of healthcare providers, et cetera? And so I, I mentioned when I introduced myself, I always kind of get pulled into atypical projects. And I also happen to have some availability in terms of project work. So it, it the stars aligned and they're like, all right, you're gonna you're gonna be our guy. What made this unique for me, and I know this is going to be not necessarily unique to y'all, but um, what made this unique for me is that it's within the post-acute space. There's probably five, six years ago, there are not that many consultants who were working within like rehab or just post-acute space in general. Obviously, everything was pretty much acute based. And we also, from a Cerner standpoint, we did not have really any predictive models for post-acute. So and also, when we start thinking about metrics, we didn't have anything that focused on metrics that are typically acute-based, right? So, I mean, we're focusing mm-hmm. on acute care transfers. Acute hospitals don't worry about that. So, it it made it unique in a lot of just a lot of the areas for myself. And I think it'd probably be the same for a lot of other sort of consultants at the time, too. So, Andy used the term react. Dale, can you break down what that is and what that means in our space? Yeah. So, as we started looking at ways we could take this clinical data and give our clinicians tools where they could improve care and improve patient outcomes, we looked at common challenges, not just post-acute providers, but acute providers may face with their patients. And one of those was patients readmitting back to the acute setting. In our space, when a patient comes into rehab, there is the potential that a patient can Uh, have medical complications where we have to send them back to the acute setting. After they have been through a lot already, they're in rehab to try to get better and get home. um, And it's a step back. Yeah, it's a step back for them. So we looked at, well, we could take this data and really better understand 
what's causing patients to have to transfer back to the acute setting, an acute care transfer within rehab. And that led us to develop a predictive model that gives our clinicians, all clinicians caring for that patient, a risk that the patient, the level of risk a patient may have to transfer back to the acute setting due to medical complications. That led to us naming that predictive model REACT, um, basically reacting to medical complexities, reducing acute care transfers. That was our first model. And it's actually been around now since 2017. Yeah. Um, And like we talked about, being one of the first post-acute providers to adopt the EHR um, and fast forward a decade, and we have just massive amounts of data surrounding our our inpatient care and our patient population. How do we utilize this partnership and the post-acute innovation center um, to best utilize that data? So how we approach this is, first of all, I think we've already mentioned this, but in our space, our very specific space of inpatient rehab care, we admit more than 200,000 patients a year. So that when we say we have a large amount of data, we have a large amount of data. In our, in our hospitals on any given day, we have between six and 7,000 patients. So as we looked at challenges that our patients can face and the need to give our clinicians better tools, we were able to, because of the years of experience we already had with Cerner, we were able to pull together a diverse team of individuals. This led to our partnership. We knew we had the clinicians. We knew we had a lot of great IT professionals, but we also know Cerner knows EHR work, but they also know data science, and they had a team of data scientists that we could pull together as a team to really evaluate what digital tools could we offer the hospitals. Um, And that's kind of how we use this data. Um, Now, Andy, you may be able to describe more about um, the work we've done, the types of predictive models that we work with, how how many years of data we use, that kind of thing. Yeah, we so we always typically try to look for a good sample size. Then that number has usually been two years of data. I think there's been some cases when we first started React work back in 2017. You know, it's like, well, given with all the changes that were going on, more hospitals coming on. I think there was a period of time where we were evaluating what was that time frame. Was it a year, two years, three years, etc just to understand that was. But once we landed on the time frame, then we started using the the machine learning and AI, AI work. So a lot of the different uh, data science modeling tools, there's like logistic regression, XGBoost, CapBoost, just to name a few. But we've evolved just with, you know, what our data scientists think is like cutting edge. It's always been kind of changing that. And even with the work that we're doing today, we've we've seen that change. So it's always been a, an evolution. We don't necessarily get stagnated with things that were done how we did things five years ago. It's, you know, what's going to work the best. And, and then, of course, be applicable to the type of model, just like we are today with like a cat boost, which is a category based uh, machine learning feature selection type model. You talked about continuously evolving. What version of that React model are we on today? Well, so we version one, but that has gone through some if you want to call them defects or fixes, 
with the way regulatory data ch- makes things change and how clinicians are are having to document, you know, that with the earth pie when it comes to very specific yeah. uh, government regulations, we've had to flex the model just so we can take those newer updated pieces of documentation and still leverage them within the model. So while we may say version one on the backside of things, it might be like version 15. But, yeah. you know, for all sake purposes, it's it's still version one. Yeah. Today, we're on just within the last, you know, half a year, we're on version two. And it's the same thing. You know, we're on probably version 10, I think, on the, the back end side of things. But that's just working through a number of complex kind of technical things. But we still call version two for all intents and purposes. So um, we talked about React. What are some of the other solutions and tools that the Innovation Center has developed? Following uh, the deployment of React, we knew we needed to continue down the path of reducing readmissions where possible. And we thought it was logical to look at what happens once the patient leaves us and they return to the community. Uh, What is the likelihood they may, within the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, readmit back to the hospital? So we decided our data um, could really help develop a readmission risk model um, that will help our clinicians in concert with the REACT model as that patient moves closer to discharge, give them a risk that that patient may readmit back to the acute setting within 30 days post-discharge from us. It allows our clinicians the opportunity to kind of target some of their discharge planning strategies and transition of care strategies to really look at specific patients that may be having medical issues, um, health equity issues, whatever those challenges may be, to stabilize those things as much as we can as we move that patient home and particularly set us up to speak to those Uh, home health providers, Mm -hmm. those primary physicians that may be assuming care of the patient once they get home to give them the best information they have in real time so that they can coordinate that care uh, and address some of those potential risk factors. Andy mentioned a lot of the tech piece, but what is the clinician see? So what does this mean at bedside? So one of the biggest... So... You know, a lot of times when you hear healthcare organizations speaking about big data and predictive models, um, these models, as we know, the ones we use produce a risk level. But our we are extremely transparent with what we provide our clinicians. So we don't say we don't just say there's um, nurse Smith. You have a patient whose risk level is high to readmit back to the acute setting. We give them the clinical factors, whatever factors are combining to create that risk for that patient that the models learned about. We give those risks, those factors to face up to all the clinicians caring for that patient, the doctors, the nurses, the therapists, so that they know what are the biggest reasons that patient may be at high risk. What are some examples of those? Yeah, so you've got things like Um, their physical function, what level of physical functioning, um, what level of cognitive function, how impaired is the patient, and then the model will continue to look at that over the course of that patient's stay with us. Um, Of course, medical factors like certain lab values, certain vital signs, medications, those kind of things. 
Um, the, the challenge with those things, every model, of course, is trained differently, learns differently, and creates a different le- uh, number of potential factors the patient can have. Um, so part of it is making what's face up delivered to that clinician very transparent, but also very intuitive. So they understand what we're showing them, what that, because the vital signs, say a blood pressure, mm-hmm. um, it may be a deeper uh, measurement of that blood pressure. So we try to give them all of that information. So within their workflow, when they're in the electronic health record system, a physician or a nurse can have their dashboard pulled up. That's kind of their main point of starting their day. And they can see for every patient what their risk level is and what are the factors that are creating that risk. Andy, could you talk a little bit about how that system learns and how those factors can be refined over time? Yeah, so the the way machine learning works, and at least how we've used it, is it's very purposeful. It's very uh, uh, like a, an event that happens. It doesn't continuously learn like what people think the movies of artificial intelligence are. It's a very big thing. So we took that data set of two years, like I mentioned before, and we run it through what's, you know, a machine learning model like that XG boost, logistic regression, what have you. And based on that type of model, it's going to spit out a whole bunch of features or factors, like Dale said. And in those factors, you know, there could be 500, but then it's our job as a clinical team, data scientists, um, executives, IT, all this. Yeah, this big I remember that's going been through that list. Together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, then that's that tells us, well, obviously we can't show 500 things to a right. clinician. Like data, Dale was saying, we have to make it intuitive, easy to just consume. So that list usually then gets dwindled down to, you know, a very small subset. You know, like falls, we have what, like 50 some, or I mean, that's React. Falls, we have like 40 some. So, and then even with some newer work we're doing, like maybe the magic number is 20 to 30. So the idea of the the numbers maybe not like a, a set thing. It's just how do we make it still very predicting, predictful, if that, you know, making a word up there. But also that list of factors making it easy to 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 understand. So that machine learning process, it's done at a point in time. And once it's done, it's done. And then we we figure out how to deploy that model um, so we can put it in the hands of clinicians. So there are that I'm 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 circumnavigating a lot of time and a lot of work. It, I mean that could be easy six months just to work through the data, the iterations, all the factors, etc. To to land on a final list of factors that we want to use, and then from there it's deployment. So in in the real world of now the model is live, clinicians are using it. We have to have automated tooling to help monitor the thing. Does it does it still work effectively? And so a lot of the data scientists and even some of the, the pipeline engineering teams, they've built automated uh, monitoring toolage to review this stuff. And so when if, let's say, documentation changes, for example, so Dale mentioned some of the cognitive or functional tests or functional uh, assessments that nurses, therapists chart on. Well, if some of the documentation changes or maybe the practice of how nurses or doc- or uh, uh, ther- therapists are are charting on something, maybe they just started to do something incorrectly. The model itself, this automated tooling can pick up on those things to say, hey, well, this functional assessment that shows in the model, 
it's starting to show what's called missingness or just, you know, it's not seeing the data and it can flag and then chime to the various engineers to say, there's something wrong here. And then from there we can say, all right, well, because the data is not feeding the model, I mean, the predictiveness starts to, it can start to go down just because that data is not there. So there's this, that's just an example, but this really helps address issues. And even in the example of, let's say there's just something that completely changes or something that breaks, these automated tools can help identify those so we can get a fix in. Um, Because really after the, after three to five years, models can degrade. And that's only because we've now set the bar a little bit higher. We started with saying maybe our metric, our KPI target is we want to be 10%. And I'm just making up numbers here. But then after three to five years, maybe our we've improved that outcome and maybe we're at like an 8%. And, and, and that example going lower is better. So we want to continue to retain a high level of predict- predictiveness. So we actually then have to retrain the model after so long because that 8%, maybe it's now to 6% and so on. And we can't use outdated models trying to predict on um, patient scenarios that we can mitigate risk because it's identifying patients that were kind of maybe no longer at risk if we were using a model, you know, like long, long time ago. Yeah. So it's all about the balance of making sure that, you know, time data cheat or uh, documentation changes, looking at what that C stat or AUC, that's, that's the, the numerical value that we, we coin this predictiveness. Uh, But yeah, it's all a big balance in, in the data world. From a time perspective, how quickly does the patient's, like an individual patient risk change when, let's say, a lab value gets entered? How quickly does that affect those predictive models? Yeah, so these models run in near real time. So, if, you know, with our thousands of patients in the hospital every day, this model is constantly running. So if a new lab value comes in, uh, the model is going to crawl that data, and it will take that into consideration. Um, and it may change the risk level. It may change this. It may not. Um, but running pretty constantly, that's a big thing that we faced as such a large organization, is ensuring that these models can effectively uh, run so that we get all of this information back to the clinician as quickly as possible so they can take action on that information. And we talked about readmission risk during this day and trying to predict it after. Um, We have a sepsis model, a VTE risk model, and then one of the more recent models, which the clinical team was really excited about. And I think when we first started talking about predictive analytics, a lot of the clinical team was excited about developing a fall risk model. Yeah, that's been our really our latest, um, I think, quite successful as we looked at one of our other big challenges in rehab, a patient fall um, is an extreme uh, complication that no patient needs to have to go through. And so we had been able to learn with all of these other models we had developed, we moved on to, can we predict the risk of a fall in an inpatient rehab facility? Um, and it's been quite successful um, one of the things that I wanted to say, so in the falls model is a good one to speak to, as we develop that model, again, all developed in the same way. We use multiple years of data. Um, this was specific to the ERF patient, so we used hundreds of thousands of patient records 
to develop this model, we looked a little bit differently about how we display that information. Um, And we were able to design some very specific suggestions or guides for clinicians in how they address fall precautions, how they customize things for patients. Uh, We were able to automate some things. So we were able to kind of move to the next level with this model. And one thing I wanted to comment on, these models, data science, if you have a lot of data, you have this great ability to develop some of these things that really help identify risk. But if a clinician doesn't understand the information they see, they're not going to engage with that. And it needs, it's got to be in a presentable way so that they can understand it, engage with it, and take action based on what they're seeing. It's to help them be more effective and efficient in their care. And I think the fall risk model really afforded us, because we had a lot of experience under our belt at this point, all of us had worked together for a number of years, we were able to really deploy not just the model, but a very specific program around the model. So clinicians know when we give them a risk model, it's not just, here you go, here's a risk model. We provide a lot of care strategies around the model to help them know if a patient's at high risk of a fall, we kind of give them the direction to go into. It's still ultimately their clinical decision, but we help guide them with what are the key things they need to be looking for. Before we had the fall risk model, we were using a standardized tool on every patient, and most of our patients were scoring at high risk. And if everyone's high risk, also no one is high risk, um, because it's just not sensitive enough to pick up which patients are truly at that high risk level. And so being able to get that um, accurate assessment of risk is what then leads to the appropriate interventions. And so just the risk is just that one piece. And then they need to put the appropriate interventions in place to keep the patient safe. And so that was a that was a very robust program. And that risk model was just kind of one element. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're talking about machine and computers, but ultimately these are going to be clinicians at bedside treating patients and using these algorithms and AI. Have you had any pushback from clinical staff in interpreting these or using these? You know, it's had to evolve over time. And maybe I would say, maybe not pushback, but I term it healthy hesitancy. They healthy hesitancy as clinicians, when you're presenting a new tool to them, they want to understand it, rightfully so. It's to help them care for that patient. There was a lot of questioning in the very beginning, a lot of education. And that's one thing that's so important to look at. How do you educate the clinicians and how do you continue to educate clinicians as we have new nurses and new physicians and new therapists? Uh, so that's that's really important. But they've had to learn to really trust the data science and also know that we're always they are part of the development of uh, the models with their clinical data and also the programs that we place around these models. So for both of you, how do we know that these tools are making a difference? How do we know they work? Yep. So, of course, we've got our key performance indicators we're tracking. Um, of course, you know, are we reducing our readmission rate? Are we reducing our fall rate? And quite honestly, it 
the evidence is clear. Uh, we are changing those rates. We have reduced them over time. Uh, we continue to monitor. We never say the model did that alone. There's a lot of other factors that play into that, but we would not continue to develop these if we didn't see significant improvement. We're keep getting more patients home, keeping them at home, and preventing them from falling. And I think there's a lot of other opportunities. We also get a lot of clinician feedback, uh, not just on the front end when we're educating them and they're first using the models, but on an ongoing basis, we seek their feedback. Uh, We've got thousands of clinicians we can learn from, and it's most important to us that they can, again, understand what they're seeing and be able to take action on that information. And if it's not working for them because we're not displaying things correctly, um, it's confusing in some way, it's not in the right place in their workflow, then we strive to continue to improve those things. Yeah, it's definitely not the model. It's the clinicians using that, getting great information that they can apply clinically. So our great clinical teams having the best data available and then seeing what we can do to reduce acute care readmissions and reduce falls and even even fractions of a percentage point, which we've got some pretty significant changes. But even fractions, when you look at 200,000 patients a year, that's, that's a lot of people that avoided a negative clinical event. Exactly. Andy, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, I was just going to say that as it plays into the KPIs and re- reduction of out whatever the outcome that we're looking at, I mentioned the ongoing maintenance, that automated monitoring that, that we have in place. And if it wasn't for that, I think we wouldn't be able to achieve some of these KPIs like we would we'd hope for, uh, just because if we, if we didn't, if we did not find something that was missing, then we could start seeing all kinds of features just losing their effectiveness. So mm-hmm. without that ongoing maintenance, I, I just don't think some of this KPIs could be really there. That that keeps the model strong. So let's wrap it up with one final question for both of you. What advice would you give other providers looking to implement predicted models into their care? You know, with what Andy just said, I wanted to add a, a suggestion, some advice. Never think once you've developed a model and you've deployed it, can you just let it go? There is the monitoring. There's the constant enhancement, seeking clinician feedback. And every so many years, if you're doing the right thing and you're making improvements and you're going to have to update those models, get the right team. First of all, you've got to start with what gaps do you have in your care? Where, what, what challenges are you facing? that your patients may be facing, your clinicians may be facing, that you could solve with this type of capability. Maybe you're doing great in a certain area, but you could go further if your clinicians had some more advanced tools and use the clinical data you have. Don't let it, it's there, use it, but you have to get the right people to understand that data Never underestimate the amount of time it's going to take if you do it correctly. The right people and the right amount of time to study the data and get what you're going to give to clinicians, get it right. Don't deploy something thinking it's just immediately going to be adopted because it won't be if you don't get it in their hands in the right way and give them the right information. Um, And so engage your clinicians, engage your data scientists, your IT professionals. It needs to be a diverse team. And I would say just echoing what Dale said, absolutely. 
um, not everyone maybe is fit to leverage predictive models. Like maybe the culture of the organization just isn't willing to understand what the data science is. It's like, oh, it's just another tool. We know that these tools don't replace clinical decision making, but, you know, they enhance it. They enhance it. It's another tool to use, just like any other assessment and the, you know, output some sort of value that you can react to. But, you know, it's not just that. Right. And then I guess in addition to what Dale said is when it comes to the data, don't always just assume that your data set is perfect. We know all data is somewhat imperfect. And you know, what you start out with may not be what you end up with. And then just be flexible. You're, the data itself, um, don't get too caught up in the details. You know, the data scientists help guide you a lot through that. And then you got you to gotta, you know, be able to trust your data scientists. So um, the, the data itself, you know, don't get stuck. It, it'll definitely help you. Um, you need to be flexible. Maybe there's additional data sets to look at, but, um, you know, don't get too stuck and, and stubborn with, oh, it's our data set. We have to just use that. Great. Thank you both so much. This is so interesting and such a, there's so much technology in healthcare and advances, but the AI and machine learning space, I think there is a lot more predictable analysis that we can do over time and excited to see what comes out of the Innovation Center. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. You can catch up on past episodes at blog.encompasshealth.com slash podcasts or find us wherever you listen to podcasts.